It's 4th of July, so happy 4th of July, everyone. And our message today will reflect a little bit on Interdependence Day and the spirituality of democracy. So this last week, I went on a little odyssey of exploration to find out what I could about democracy. And I learned all kinds of things that I didn't know before. I also was able to reflect on some things that I remembered and that I especially love about the UCC, which is that of all denominations in the world, the United Church of Christ is one of the most de democratic ones founded on the notion of participatory democracy. But more about that later. First, let's just think about what democracy is for a minute. Democracy, according to Webster's Dictionary, it says a democracy is a, a, a time, a place, an organization where all members have an equal share of power. All members have an equal share of power. It also offers other definitions like a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives. So that's what we might be more familiar with. It could be a control of an organization or group by the majority of its members. And it is understood in our modern times to be the intended extension of industrial democracy, which I found interesting that those two things were intertwined. But I liked uh, that it, it listed control over an organization or group by the majority of its members. So that's sort of what the UCC, how it understands itself. And then the final definition in Webster was the practice or principles of social equality. The practice or principles of social equality. And so all of these definitions are sort of wrapped up in our self-understanding too as a nation of, a, of people. And the word itself comes from the Latin, well, comes from Latin via Greek, demos meaning people, and kratia meaning power or rule. So people rule, people power rather than monarchy, uh, oligarchy, ruling by elite. Now I learned some other fascinating things about democracy. We know, uh, most of us know, it started in ancient Greece, at least our Western idea of democracy started in, Western, in ancient Greece, in Athens. But then it also evolved over the years. So it, I learned that Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and the Isle of Man, all islands sort of up in sort of Northern Europe, uh, when they were, uh, pillaged by the Vikings, the Vikings actually established ancient democracies there in the 9th and 10th centuries. And so my, even though these islands came under other rule in the succeeding centuries, the earliest sort of parliamentary democracy uh, existed on these islands for uh, over a thousand years. And then I also learned that the United States is sometimes considered one of the oldest democracies. Uh, we know, understand that it's a republic and it's a little different from uh, democracy in a broader understanding. But um, it, that depends on how you define democracy. So some folks would say that Switzerland or San Marino were got, you know, 
cut to the chase faster than the United States did, and they would be considered the first democracies. Others say that the Native American Six Nations Confederacy of the Iroquois actually represents the first large-scale democracy of many, many people over a large region. And their way of ruling themselves lasted eight centuries, and that was here in the U.S. even before the colonists arrived. And then still, oh, you can see already that there's this huge debate about, okay, what is democracy? When did it really start? Uh, you know, who has claims and, and what are its parts and pieces? And so others in their debate, they will say that meaningful democracy only arrived at a national level in 1906, when Finland became the first country to abolish race and gender requirements for not just voting, but also participation in government. So both and. And we know that in the United States, uh, African Americans could vote once the ratification of the 15th Amendment was in place, that was 1870. But then women were not allowed to vote until around 1920. So in a way, Finland did beat the US to the punch on that score, just because um, the, the women hadn't been allowed to vote by the time Finland made it possible. And so it's, I really thought a lot about this. And one of the things I thought about was that last part of the Webster's definition of democracy, the practice or principles of social equality. So we can see that in the evolution of democracy in our, in our current understanding of it, there was an increase in social equality. So if we just take the United States, the, um, the expansion of equality or an understanding of equality to more and more people, to African-American, former slaves, and to women. So there was this extension, this growth of our understanding of equality. And that just makes things complicated because it's something we're still struggling with here in the US. It's something that the early Puritans arriving in the Mayflower struggled with. They, in, way back in 1620, when they were parked or anchored, I should say, up by Cape Cod, are still on their boat. They, they decided they dare not any further because their supplies were running low. But they were a mix of people. They were the, the Puritans escaping religious oppression in Great Britain under King James. But they were also, there were also some merchants, some adventurers, some not particularly religious folks. And so they decided that they had best create a covenant among themselves so that they would self-govern. And so the very first covenant that they wrote, still anchored off of Cape Cod, talks about this idea of covenant, of self-rule, though interestingly written into that original language of that first covenant was this idea that they were still ultimately under the rule of King James, but they were going to self-govern as a colony here in the United States. But of the signers, it was still 41 men out of over 100 folks on the, on, the, on the ship. And of course, women were not included. But this idea of covenant, of, of self-governance, of escape from oppression, of the expansion of equality. So for the Puritans, they were looking for an equality of religious expression. For African-Americans, equality in the sense of uh, a right to have property, to vote, to have a quality of life, for women too, to have a, a voice in civic society. 
So even, even in our earliest colonial times, this idea of self-governance, governance by the people, but also the seeds then sown for opportunities to expand equality to more and more people. Over this last week, I've been reading a book called The Sweetness of Water, and it was written by Nathan Harris. It's on Oprah Winfrey's uh, recommended list and a, a New York Times bestseller. And it tells the story. It's a book, work of fiction, obviously historical fiction, but there's this story where, um, set in Georgia, the Union soldiers have just come through, gone to all the plantations, and told every little slave cabin that they were officially freed. And they now had a choice. They could leave the plantation to try their luck and do other things, or they could stay, but they would need, they would or should expect a wage if they stayed for their labor. And this was a time of huge upheaval. Folks with nothing were suddenly given a kind of freedom that wasn't really a freedom. Freedom to starve. Freedom to leave everything they'd known and take tremendous risk with nothing. So it wasn't really freedom. And I learned to my horror something I did not know, um, and maybe those of you who grew up here knew this, but I learned that in many cases the Union soldiers in order to sort of create better relationships with the Confederate folks, uh, the, both the soldiers and just the families who'd lost their sons to war, they sometimes offered like rations or clothes or just something to sort of help to reconcile, to, to create opportunities for a sense of shared humanity. But the former slaves got nothing no rations, no clothing, nothing. And so this story, again, this work of fiction, it tells the story of two brothers, two, uh, two former slaves, who found themselves on the property of a white farmer. And they were camping out. They really, really wanted to leave the plantation. So they were sort of eking out a living on the edge of the woods, hunting rabbits, you know, just sort of getting by. And the farmer, George, He's kind of a thoughtful man. I love the book because he's complex. He's not a perfect person, but he's, he's really thoughtful. And so he meets these young uh, brothers, and he himself is, is growing old, and he thinks he's just lost his son in the war and is looking for meaning and purpose. And so he goes to these gentlemen that he encountered in his woods, and he said, I'm going to start a peanut farm. I know nothing about peanut farming, but I bet you do. I would like to pay you a day's wage and, uh, you know, a, 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 fair, a fair wage for day labor and uh, we'll fix up my barn and, and you all, they wanted to go north, well, he said, I'll make sure that you can save enough. When you're ready, you can move north. I won't try to hold you or keep you because they were worried about that. And, and uh, so he did this really radical thing. And a couple weeks later, George's good friend in the, in the nearby town calls him in for a pint and a word. And Ezra is, you know, sitting across the table from George, and Ezra looks at George and he says, you know, I live here in town, I hear all the rumors, and I feel like as, my fr as, you, as your friend, I need to let you know that your life is in danger. 
because people are not happy that you are paying former slaves a wage when all these Confederate soldiers are coming back from war and, and, and they can't find work. So people are resentful. They're resentful not only because of the still um, complex and awful race relationships that haven't even had a time to be restructured. They're resentful because they perceive that their needs are, are not being cared for. So I'm only halfway through the book, so I can't actually tell you what happens. But it was really, really a new eye-opening thing to me that that idea of democracy, of extension of equality, is deeply complex and how we resist it in so many ways, how it's hard for us to, to offer with generosity because there are so many competing needs and so many different ways of understanding. And I thought about how, you know, this, this book, The Sweetness of Water, is about interdependence. You know, there was interdependence even before the Civil War, right? The white plantations relied on, on black labor. So there, there was interdependence, but it was very structured. But it was a power over independence, interdependence. And what I feel the spirit of democracy is, is a power with interdependence, where we recognize that we are independent with one another and that we really strive to have power with each other rather than power over each other. And that's one of the reasons why I love the United Church of Christ, because they really, they really try to undo our old ideas of hierarchy, where even our bishops, uh, our conference ministers, don't have power over, they can't tell churches what to do, they're there in a supportive capacity. So our congregations are very much that spirit of equipping people, empowering people, encouraging people to fully participate in the spiritual practice of equality and what that looks like and feels like. Because it's not an easy thing. And so it's one of the most important, I feel, especially in today's America, spiritual practices that we have. How do we truly recognize the full humanity and dignity of every human being, no matter how different they are from us in belief or color or origin? How do we fully recognize that and really strive for equality? Not some kind of false sense of just freedom, but that idea of that we are interdependent and interdependent in a way that allows people to flourish really fully. There was a really interesting article in The Atlantic, I think a couple of weeks ago. It was written by a gentleman called George Packer. And he talks about the four Americas. And according to, to Mr. Packer, he says that right now in the United States, there are four competing visions of the United States. So maybe prior to the Civil War, there was this idea of, of um, North and South, that sort of, those were the two big competing, there were more, much more than that, but say those were the two big ones. And so now he's identified four different ones, and I won't elaborate, I'll encourage you just to go and look it up, because it's online if you want to read it. But the four that he identifies are free America, smart America, 
real America and just America. And so free America, sort of the worst iteration of that is the, the freedom uh, that comes at the expense of others. That I really need my AK-15 just because I feel like I really need to have it because I'm free and I should, even though there's loss of life. So that, that kind of freedom is the worst iteration, but also the good part of freedom is, is the freedom to pursue our happiness with some independence and, and choice, right? So there's, there's, a, there's an extreme on either end in each of these four visions of America, four stories of America. Then there's the smart America, which Packer identifies as sort of the educated elite who earn the top 10% of income, who are professionals a little separate from working class folks, don't really understand working class needs. Real America is, is maybe what we just survived, um, where uh, populists sort of steal the story of ordinary folk, but the story where the story of ordinary folk is pretended to be lifted up as the story, but it's not in a, in a way that really holds the interdependence or power with each other. So the story of folks with less education on minimum wage, but the story that then becomes twisted by billionaires and used at the expense of people who, who are actually struggling. And then just America, the, you know, the, the story of struggle for emancipation, for equality, and, and that, that too has some problems of, you know, can we have real conversations without being worried that we're being politically correct all the time? Can we have authentic conversations where we're challenging each other and, and, and safe to have those conversations? So that's some of the things that he brought up. And then he made this claim that I invite you to think about on this Independence Day. Mr. Packer, he made a claim that he said that, yes, so this I absolutely agree with, but he said all of these four stories arise from a single society, but they, they tend, they're polarizing us right now. And we, our only choice, as long as we're here, is to find a way to live together. And how do we do that? And he says, I think that we find that through really holding true to this idea of equality, helping support the equality of all people, and finding any way that we can to do that. But the thing that I, um, I noticed that I had a little resistance to was his assertion that, that the, these four emerged, these four different stories, disparate stories, emerged from America's failure to sustain and enlarge the middle-class democracy of the post-war years, which is sometimes remembered sort of as a golden age in America where there was a little more equality, uh, there was a, a, a larger middle class. And, and I just, it made me pause for a second, and again, I invite you to reflect on this, but why is middle class democracy more democratic than a democracy where working class voices are really truly heard too? And so that's the puzzle for me. Why in America is democracy mostly understood as a, as a middle class enterprise? How do we increase equality for those who sleep in our parking lot at night during safe parking? Folks who are working two minimum wage jobs and still can't afford an apartment in Silicon Valley. Folks who, who yes, the Affordable Care Act made healthcare maybe a little more accessible, but not entirely. 
You still need to have a computer. You know, the public libraries were closed during the pandemic. Where do poor people go to fill out their car registration? You know, it's just, it's incredibly complex. So in today's society, we are still falling far short of that democratic ideal of equal power, shared power, and, and true equality. And so, again, on this Day of Independence, of Interdependence Day, I think for us, one of the most powerful ministries, again, that we as a congregation can bear witness to is that spiritual practice that we have, that we almost take for granted, because from our earliest days, our congregation, our church, our denomination has held the idea of participatory democracy as a spiritual practice at its core, as a way to build community, as a, be, a way to be in relationship with each other. And it's just so important, again, in our world, as we seek to heal the divisions of the last four years and more, that we get to share this with our community and say, we have practice at this, we, we can do this, this is what is leading us forward into the future. And as our congregation continues to discern our future, those are gifts that you all bring to the table. That, that spiritual practice of not being power over anyone, but sharing power with people. And of equipping voices on the edges to be in leadership. And in supporting everybody to, to play that role in leadership so we get to practice it as a muscle that we exercise. And I just want to close the message today on a slightly different note because we've talked about politics, we've talked about history, we've talked about democracy, we've also talked about the voices that are missing from the table. And I wanted to share just a poem with you by Shel Silverstein. He's a children's poet. Many of you may know him. He's super funny and lighthearted. But he had this really tender poem, The Little Boy and the Old Man. And I think that Although we're still far from equality, we're growing in a sense of understanding that people with every shade of skin color and people of every gender and gender fluidity and transgender deserve a seat at the table. They deserve their full humanity to be recognized. But I do feel in this society that sometimes children and sometimes our older people are voices that are left out. And so how can we then ensure that these voices are part of our, our community, of our spiritual practice? So I'm just going to read this poem because it's incredibly tender. It's incredibly vulnerable, but it is deeply affirming. And I want to just end on this note. Here's the poem. Said the little boy, sometimes I drop my spoon. Said the old man, I do that too. The little boy whispered, I wet my pants. I do that too, laughed the little old man. Said the little boy, I often cry. And the old man said, so do I. But worst of all, said the boy, it seems grown-ups don't pay attention to me at all. And he felt the warmth of a wrinkled old hand. 
I know what you mean, said the little old man. And it is such a tender poem, and I hope that in our community with each other, that we never forget that all our voices deserve to be heard and uplifted and loved in exactly the way we are. And may that be a blessing of our community. Amen.